Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that wants to abolish prisons and transphobia. This week we have Laura, Ambria, and Walita. Oh my God! What, what is this? Who's that? Who is she? Who is she? <laughs> so yeah, you guessed it. We have brought on one of our two new co-hosts. By the time this airs, our second one will have been selected. But um, we are so 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 excited that. Um, Walita is able to join us as a new co-host. You may recall that she was on slash put together the entire foreign policy in the left episodes. And we are so freaking excited to have her be a part of the coven, be a part of this crazy project that we have going on. Uh, yeah. Walita, do you want to say anything? I do. I am thrilled to be part of the coven um i have been a uh witch without one for a very long time um so i'm very happy to finally find my fellow coven witches um thanks uh yeah thanks so much for inviting me to be a part of season of the bitch uh i've been listening to it from the start and i'm just really excited to you you know you all talk to so so many interesting people and um, so many interesting subjects that I'm just honored to be a part of it. Everyone on this podcast, like, sort of has their own thing that they bring. And I'm just so excited, Walita, to see, like, what you bring. You know, we all have, like, our separate experiences and our interests that lead us to find out more. Um, yeah, I'm just excited to hear everything that you have to say. For example, Ambria brings a killer midwestern accent to the podcast <laughs> mm-hmm. i bring mm-hmm. a lot of rage um, uh, which this is unfair because walita is also from the midwest but nobody's talking about her accent that's because well, she doesn't spent... have a midwestern accent <laughs> i don't and i don't know why i've been told this before i don't know it's if it's because um I lived in I lived in DC for five years, so I might have just shed it while I was there. Um, I don't know if it's because my you know my parents are immigrants, and when I was when I learned English, I didn't know English for the first five years of my life, despite being born in Chicago. So I learned British English from them, and I went to kindergarten saying things like rubbish bin <laughs> instead of trash can. Um, that is so amazing. I, I don't know, <laughs> you know, maybe I'll try to get a, a Chicago accent. I'll try. Yes. Oh. Amazing. Well, we <laughs> will be, you know, getting started with this episode, but we just wanted to really take some time and warmly welcome you to to the fold. Thank you. Yay. So this week we are talking about how the carceral state affects queer and trans people disproportionately. With us, we have two amazing comrades from the Bay Area. Welcome, Leah and Victoria. Hi. We're so glad to have y'all both with us here. Um, Before we get started, can each of you please introduce yourself, what your background is, and why this topic is so important to you? Okay, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, My name is Victoria, and I'm involved in the Justice Committee in DSASF, and um, I think that 
policing and prisons help protect private property and white supremacy. And so their abolition will be essential in the dismantling of capitalism. And I am also on the justice committee with Victoria. Um, oh, this is Leah. Um, I'm also in the queer caucus for DSA SF. And I also believe strongly in prison abolition. Um, we're both pretty involved in police brutality um, or anti-police brutality efforts in San Francisco. Um, and what Victoria didn't mention is that she's also the lead singer of a punk band, which is really oh. cool. Oh, oh my God. Can we feature Victoria one of your songs on this episode? <laughs> yes. Yes, please do. They're called, what do you call the end? Downtown Boys. Downtown Boys. <laughs> Downtown Boys. Okay. I'm going to write this down. Um, so what is prison abolition. We know that sometimes people aren't sure what it even means. The carceral state is such a huge part of our reality that I think it can be very hard to even imagine what the alternatives are. So I think that we actually, this question has been coming up more and more, um, like as people are actually envis envisioning uh, a different world that we want to live in. And um, so one thing that our committee is doing is we're actually having a training um, and we're working with a community organization called Critical Resistance, which is um, an abolitionist organization in the Bay Area that fights um, the police a lot. I think that like a really simple way to think about prison abolition is thinking about a world in which there are, are alternatives to police and prisons. And so when we're answering that question, it's not our job to determine those alternatives because that wouldn't be very democratic. Um, and it would also like not be very responsible um, because that would need to be coming from a grassroots, mo grassroots movement from the people. Um, but people have thought of different alternatives such as like restorative justice, um, redistributing resources so that we don't see crimes, uh, property crimes being charged and criminalized and people spending their lives in prison um, because of a lack of resources and resorting to um, what the state has determined to be a property crime. So uh, those are, you know, two different alternatives. Um, so really it's about like how to change our relationship to police and prisons being the response uh, when we're thinking about justice. Yeah, and I think um, I think punishment and justice really need to be divorced from each other because mm. right now when we the way our system works is that whenever somebody commits a crime um, and the perpetrator is punished and thrown in jail or um, given a fine or community service or whatever, we just you know that's usually the end-all be-all, like we say, you know, justice has been served, but that also doesn't take into account, like, the reverberating effects it has on um, the community and um, what it means for both the victim and perpetrator for the rest of their lives. Um, usually, like, when we think of, like, um, when we think of, I'm thinking of, like, um, like, let's say, like, somebody... So we have we have in California the three strikes law, right? Mm -hmm. um, and 
like I'm thinking of like people who have been marked as like career criminals, even though they've only done, you know, low scale, small, maybe petty theft or whatever, but they end up getting, um, and they do that out of necessity and they, but they end up like getting life sentences for just doing what they can to survive. Even if that does mean having to shoplift or do other things just to, just to ensure that they have, you know, some, some of some form of shelter and food on the table. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very cool. Thank you both for sharing that. I know that there's going to be a lot of big questions here and we're just like so happy to have y'all's um, thoughts on these things. So we know that jails are traumatizing and often dangerous places, especially for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people and anyone who is gender nonconforming. In a country that incarcerates more of its people than any other in the world, LGBT people are more likely to end up behind bars. And as of 2012, it was three times more likely than non-LGBTQ folks. And also, they're more likely to face abuse behind bars. Being LGBT in a U.S. jail or prison often means daily humiliation, physical and sexual abuse, and fearing it will get worse if you complain. Many LGBT people are placed in solitary confinement for months or years just because of who they are. And I also want to mention that prisoners are placed in solitary confinement for reporting depression, for reporting abuse from others, for reporting a desire to hurt themselves. Solitary and segregation is used for punishment, but it's also pretty much the go-to recourse for any situation where a prisoner needs to be quote-unquote protected or quote-unquote observed. That means that many people withstand violence, abuse, and untreated mental illness rather than seek help since it likely means that they will just be given an unbearable punishment. And like Laura said, LGBT people are much more likely to need help in prison. Um, I have personally been told by a few different people that the response to their suicide ideation or for having harmed themselves is to be placed in an empty room, naked, with no blanket or bed, being stared at by a guard. Um, and in one particular instance, we're talking about male guards with a trans woman prisoner um, which made her feel very exposed each time. Yeah. It's wow. really intense. Um, so I know this is a big question and that both of you kind of started to get at this with like your opening thoughts on things. Um, but where do y'all see the intersection of queer and trans rights and the prison abolition movement? Um, I think that the, that the intersection, um, is one that like requires um, like requires everyone to kind of think about and realize like the barriers that um, each movement has built to that intersection. So because like so much of our uh, like queer liberation movement has been co-opted by um, like heteronormative um, idealization or has been co-opted by like the want for uh, equal rights to to people who identify as straight um, or who has read as straight um, or like has become kind of like in many ways can become classless. So like, for example, um, I see a lot of graffiti around San Francisco that says queer, queers hate techies. 
and there are like hella techies who are queer mm. and so like by putting that out there it's like kind of odd to me because I'm like well like being queer identifying being that and then identifying as that can often be like two different things for people especially like people who don't want to come out or whatever it is and so like when I see that in my opinion it's like people who are who people who may not feel like they're able to be out yet and like mm. read that and are like maybe a POC techie who like who comes from a really poor family and like happen to be uh like a science technology and math kid and now they have some low level position or whatever that's like only gonna push someone further further down and so um that's just like one example and then obviously like marriage equality is like an example of uh the co-optation of like queer liberation for for the the want to coalesce to like a lot of just politics that have been defined by white supremacy and colonialism Mm. so i think that like we're gonna need to like fight that really hard and then realize that like in fact a lot of lesbian people gay people queer people a lot of us uh, are also like targets of the police state and targets of police violence and because like police violence and the police state are so embedded in masculinity and embedded in um like masculine dominated history um like we're going to have to fight the police state in order to uh be free in order to be liberated and i think that like as abolitionists we can also come at it and like get to that center point as we're as well where we realize how much like homophobia is written into colonialism and imperialism of our bodies and of who we are and so so much of the police state relies on that because they are attempting to protect um white supremacy which is like built on masculinity built against queer liberation and so we have to like break the bonds of of that um history and the, the those futures that the police state are trying to protect um, in order to bring like our movement for freedom and liberation into into one. And so sometimes I think it can be difficult to think of so much as an intersection point because it's ultimately like many, many different planes of reality for people that we're trying to coalesce um, you know into some type of into some type of, of wider, bigger, deeper space. Mm. Um, but it definitely, you know, it's definitely really difficult. I come from a family where my aunt, um, she's, she's a lesbian and she's the only person in my family growing up who was like romantically active, like literally no one else in my immediate family, um, necessarily had like partners or anything like that except for my aunt. And so, um, I was kind of socialized only seeing, uh, like that romantic love um in my aunt's relationships and the the few men that we have in our family have been targets of police violence and of the police state and um you know my aunt and the the men in our family tend to have tend to like butt heads the most just because it's that like fierce like woman of color like rage and fight um butting heads with like with men and um and seeing that and knowing that like actually like they're closer in terms of like their positional power to the to the state or to the hegemon than um 
you know, other members in my family who aren't battling in the same way that institutional injustice. And so it's, it's going to take a lot and it's going to take a lot of, uh, struggle, a lot of fighting, um, but a lot of trusting and having good faith that we believe in each other's freedom and that we have the same target and that the oppressor is just trying to use their tools to divide us. Um, and so it's going to, it's going to take a lot of bringing our ships into, into one, uh, you know, wave, wave in the water instead of um, holding each other back. Yeah. Wow. Heavy, heavy uh, history there. Um, so I actually wanted to ask about how easy or conversely difficult it is to organize around this issue. Like, I, you know, most people, especially in the general public, I don't think they, they think that granularly about um, the prison system or, or prisoners themselves. And I think probably someone like Chelsea Manning is the most prominent transgender person who is imprisoned that I think most people would think of um, about this issue. Um, has her struggle at all had any impact or effect on organizing or bringing attention um, to the situation that trans people specifically face when it comes to uh, our police, police state and prison system? Um, I think so. Um, a little bit. I also think that she's been sidelined even after she's been released to the point that our mainstream queer liberation, I guess our mainstream like queer rights movement has sort of come to see her as like a one-off isolated incident when there are so many other trans women, usually trans women of color, um, who end up in prison and um like victoria was saying i think that the um that the mainstream gay movement um has done a really good job of co-opting and sort of shifting the focus from true liberation to um more of an assimilation lens um and that we think you know now that we have you know marriage equality and um you know, we have mar marriage equality and like in some states, um, we have anti-gay discrimination laws, um, that, you know, everything's fine. And like, we have queer politicians, um, when there's just so much more left to be done because like, you know, there's almost no anti-discrimination law based on gender identity, which is different from sex. And um, a lot of a lot of healthcare plans still don't recognize um, trans surgery options. Like they don't see they don't see top surgery as um, medically necessary for um, for trans men or trans masculine identifying men when or people when you know, it, gender dysphoria is really real and it comes out in the form of, you know, hating your body. Um, and, um, yeah, there's just, yeah. So I think a lot of people think of Chelsea Manning as like, you know, she's a, you know, she's a trans woman, but like she was also in the army and, um, like that's just so not the reality for millions of other trans people that like she's yeah. a special case or whatever. Yeah. So, um, as a little bit of background, Leah proposed this episode and they were speaking about, um, 
an instance in Texas, and I was hoping that you could share with us a little bit more about what had happened in Texas with the ICE agent. So, um, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, there was an ICE agent who was eventually caught after, like, he had killed four or five um, four or five women, I think all of whom were women of color, but at least one or two of them were trans women, and um, at least two were trans women who had been working as sex workers, and um, I thought that was such, like, not a good example, but, like, that was a, it was the intersection of, like, um, you know, anti, anti, like, transphobia and, um, like, anti-sex worker sentiment that's happened since SESTA-FOSTA was enacted, and it's also, like, a result of, like, the, you know, the heightened border security and, um, like, how much more leeway ICE has been given since Trump came to power, and I thought that it should be addressed. Like, nobody really outside of the left has been talking about it, and it's, you know, it stands for so many things that we are working so hard against that it needed to be given more attention. Yeah, that's absolutely so brutal. Thank you for sharing, even though it's absolutely terrible. Yeah, and Victoria also, Victoria and I also work, um, work part of our uh, police, anti-police brutality efforts include working with um, sex worker advocates because we have a we have a really out of control police force um, that just actually founded their uh, their first sex worker abatement unit, which Ugh. basically they've been going around harassing outdoor sex workers um, in the historic red light districts, um, most of whom are also poor women of color. Um, so, yeah, this is like a, an issue that's especially close to us. D- when did that is that? Did that just get enacted, or has that been, like, kind of in the works for a while? Um, it's really, it really just got enacted because, um, there is, so we, we both are from the mission, which is a historically, um, which is a historically Latino working class neighborhood, and, um, the, so there, like, for the last, like, 50 years, women have been, using this like two block stretch as um a track for sex work and the mission is like has been ground zero for like really rampant hyper gentrification in san francisco Mm. so there's been a group of mostly white homeowners who have like taken this opportunity to start pushing like an anti-sex worker anti-homeless um agenda to the point that they've essentially gotten the police to enact these policies by just by calling 911 and 311 so often that the police can say okay there's clearly something going on right now we need to do we need to look into it more and like here you know oh this is what we found like it's such a problem that we're gonna start like essentially harassing and like rounding up more sex workers and like basically either shuttling them off to San Francisco County Jail or to, they have something called the LEAD program, which essentially says, it's essentially a a diversion program where they say, like, 
okay, you have a choice to either go through this jobs training, or it's not even jobs training, it's like a shelter program where they'll give you like options for alternative means of work, which are usually really limited, mm-hmm. or we'll pass your case off to the DA and you can, so it's either jail or, you know, social wow. services. Yeah. That is rough. Yeah. <laughs> this is so fucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds nightmarish. Yeah, it yeah, it truly is. And we've sat through so many meetings where the SFPD has been like, We're doing so well. Like, look, we Oh we, fuck we, off. Yeah, their, their their line was literally like the other day I was at an SF SFPD community meeting and I brought that up and I was like, So what has been going on in the months since you've enacted the sex worker abatement unit? And they're like, Well, we don't keep statistics. We have to refer you to the Department of Public Health. But, like, it's so much better because back in the day, they used to just round you up and put you in the paddy wagon if you look, looked a certain way. Oh, okay. Well, that's Great. not the bar that we're setting for ourselves. No, no. Holy shit. But it's, it's really hard, too, because, like, um, one of our friends has done some research into this, and, like, so many of the women who are... Um, who are targeted and I don't want to say so many of the people who are targeted sex workers who are targeted by the police are um, people of color and also like the if you look at like the dates and you look at the crimes that people are charged with it's almost like a clockwork so it's like um, you know the police tend to um, arrest and charge a lot more people around the middle and the end of the month like They've tried to turn it into basically like it's systematic. So um, it's not it's not just anecdotal, like it's very systematized for the police. Mm. And I think also part of what's so difficult with it is it's like there even if someone wanted to exchange sex or solicit sex for with like without anything in return, it would be disgusting what they're doing for them to be targeting workers is just like so it's so fucked up because it's like they don't go to people who work for war manufacturers and target them because they're like killing people with their jobs they don't go to google or amazon and like target them for like surveillance measures that they're using to help like the u.s build its its surveillance state um because of their jobs like they don't come through to like people who work for corporations that are killing us because of their jobs and like sex workers are simply working like Mm. and their job is not that like inherently bad or hurting people like so much of capitalism Mm -hmm. and yet the police are targeting this group of workers and it's just like it's really I mean I think that what happened in Texas was like a cult like seeing all of these things coalesce where it's like undocumented or like migrant, at least trans um, sex workers being targeted by police violence. Like that should be a crisis in this country. The fact that that state sponsored violence against people should be a crisis. And instead, like the questions always put back on workers, Mm -hmm. like, well, if a work, like it's one of my aunts like works in, um working with the working with sex workers and she's just like so much of it gets put back Mm -hmm. on sex workers to explain why their job 
isn't so bad or why it's benign enough or and it's just like it should not be up to workers to have to especially sex workers to have to defend their existence like this the police should be having to explain to us why it is their why they have the ammunition to do this and they wouldn't be able to because there's no good reason. Exactly. Yeah. And we've, we've definitely gone into a bunch of different avenues of like why sex work is just work and all of the things surrounding that. And just like adding in the layer of the police state is just a whole nother messed up layer that like puts already um, people who are at risk at just higher risk completely unnecessarily and the only reason why I say at risk is because if they are on the street they're at risk of just being on the street not like their job is risky inherently yeah and and when we say that they're targeting sex workers we mean like we refer specifically to outdoor workers not Mm -hmm. like porn stars or cam girls or whatever else because like the and on top of that like most people most people, or I don't want to say most, but a large population of people who work on the street are people of color, and, like, women, trans women are overrepresented overrepresented in that, and that's, like, one of myriad ways they're victims of police violence. So, speaking of that, um, like, we obviously don't want prisons to exist, and we believe in transformative justice, um, but I've been kind of, like, when I've been thinking about this episode and thinking about all the issues in the prison system surrounding trans folks and what that, what it might mean for them to be in the carceral state, like, I don't want the jails to exist, so I hate this question already, but... (laughs) I just am curious if y'all think there is any way that our current system can possibly be modified to be more trans-sensitive. Um, in some ways, it's, like, a fucked-up way to even, like, ma- think of a system that makes small concessions that is so inherently messed up, but the way that it so intensely affects folks within the trans community makes me want to ask the question. Um, And I also want to mention Shiloh Quinn. I think that's how you say her name. Um, She was the first incarcerated person in the U.S. to receive sex reassignment surgery in 2015. She was 56 years old and has a life sentence. Um, And at the time when that happened, I had a pen pal who was a trans woman. And I had that pen pal through the Black and Pink Letter Writing Program, which people should look up. Um, But the news of this person getting to transition gave her hope. Um, but I, I don't know how that figures into the answer about, um, how we could possibly have a more trans sensitive system. Um, well, the anarchist in me just wants to say flat out, burn it all down. (laughs) Of course. Um, Totally. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, yeah, I don't really think that there can be any space for, um, modification. I think we need like a radical rethinking of it and like when we say prison abolition that also means just that means in addition to like just getting rid of prisons and jails outright that also means reimagining a world where we can hold people accountable without shutting them away for years and years and years Mm -hmm. um like it's funny because i actually 
know someone pretty intimately um, who works in the prison system as a mediator, and they came into contact with Shiloh Quine, um, and, like, if you, if you go back and, like, read stories about her, you'll see that, like, she had, like, a horrible life from the beginning, um, including, like, gen on top of, like, her already existing gender dysphoria, um, and I think that if we, I think the first step would just be addressing, like, previous traumas that had happened even before they got to jail, like, um, I think a lot of, I, yeah, I think a lot of, like, what comes out of people who, I think a lot of what ends up, um, I think a lot of what ends up happening is that people who end up in jail have been victims of circumstances beyond their control, um, usually, like, some combining factor of, like, childhood poverty and, like, abuse and, um, you know, few job prospects and that sort of thing. Um, so they're disadvantaged from the start, and I think the first, the first way we can imagine a world without prisons is to start addressing those things, like, finding more opportunities for affected communities, like, um, supporting, yeah, just supporting queer and trans people and whatever they decide to do. Like mm -hmm. if, um, like taking a harm reduction approach, like if, a, if a trans or queer person decides that they want to engage in sex work, like, you know, offer them as much support as they can, because that's usually a, that's usually a good, um, that's usually a good career prospect that's, that offers them more stability and like, just monetary value than other jobs might be that are more conventional where they would be sub subject to like discrimination and social stigma. Um, so I think just, yeah, offering them, um, support in that or, um, just recognizing things like families of origin or families, chosen families over families of origin because, mm -hmm. you know, trans people, you, trans people, often face social s stigma even from their families of origin to the point that, you know, they're um, disowned or, you know, subject to harassment and targeting from family members or other people close to them, um, some domestic violence. So I think um, going back to their communities and um, finding ways to uphold them that don't just rely on families of origin or other like legally recognized forms of support.
what kind of work have you been doing around justice in the DSA and what are what are your hopes for the future of that work? Um, so all the work I do um, that's like involved with DSA, I do um, because there's like a large movement of people fighting the police. So none of it, I would say, uh, only comes is centered around DSA. I don't think. Um, For sure. Yeah, I don't think DSA should be centered um, in any fight right now, to be perfectly honest. But um, as a very dedicated DSA justice member, and I'm the chair of the, the justice committee um, with, with another person, um, one of the things we've been able to work on a lot is keeping um, the San Francisco police from getting tasers. So tasers are all, often seen as like an alternative to guns, or like people think that if cops have tasers, they won't use a gun. And that's actually like not only are police not trained that way, but um, every reality has shown that that doesn't happen. Mm. So when cops get tasers in our country, there's actually more deaths by the police. And then like tasers hurt people in a way um, that that other means of um, de-escalation, things like that, don't hurt people. So like being tased is an incredibly painful thing. And then if you're like pregnant or you have seizures or you have like other medical issues, um, or you have trauma, like ta- like that makes the taser pain that much worse. And so they really are wep- they re- they really are militarized death weapons. And it's this giant company called Axon that that's helped get tasers in pretty much every police department in America. SF doesn't have them. Um, we've voted them in after the community fought against them for years, like way before I was involved in organizing in San Francisco. Um, and then they voted them in, but they were like, we're going to get like the ACLU and like the um, coalition on homelessness and the bar association and like doctors, like all these people like sit around the table and come up with like a a very like limiting policy of tasers. So then the police union, the police officer association, which there's a police union, obviously anywhere that there's a police department. um, and, And they really are the linchpin to a lot of police power in this country they put this thing on the ballot measure that would basically allow the police to, um, first of all, for every cop to get a taser and for them to set their own policy, it would allow them to use tasers um, to literally de-escalate verbal, what they deemed to be altercations between people. I mean, it basically just gave them a ticket to to kill more people than they already do. Um, and so it was pretty, like, obviously a lot of the groups, like, in San Francisco who are dealing with, like, their family members having been killed by the police, mm. like, fighting a ballot issue, it's, like, not really realistic for that to be a priority. Um, and then, likewise, like, a lot more, like, liberal groups and, like, even, like, Democrat groups, like, didn't necessarily want to, like, bottom line something like this because it's going after the police union. Um, but DSA Justice and, like, the ACLU, um, the ACLU was able to get us basically a bunch of money. And um, so we were able to, like, fight this, and we won. Like, we got we, – we won a no vote, which was kind of crazy to beat the, the POA. And we kind of, like – we beat them big time, too. Like, it wasn't a close vote by any means. That's awesome. Um, but what was crazy was, like, part of why I was interested in this fight was, like, we knew the POA, if they had won – they were going to try and use the ballot 
to militarize and like give police even more power mm. and so in dsa we really felt like it was important like for us to fight on this not so much because it was an electoral issue but because we saw this as a way to put up a giant roadblock to the poa and um i really think that it was amazing the way that like the justice committee like and members in dsa saw that and were able to connect like police violence with like worker power and so that's one of the things and then um all of the work that leah's been doing for sex workers i mean really like in the weeds like um they go to meetings all the time at the police station um and elsewhere in the community just like fighting um this anti anti uh, basically anti non cisgendered men thing that the police are doing to workers right now in the city so we have that and then um we didn't i don't think we really realized we needed to do this but now we are working a lot more on creating um how to create like a organizing arc for our abolition work so like we don't just want to have a membership meeting and have someone talk about abolition for 30 minutes rather like we think it's really important to like really engage members and what it means to be an abolitionist organization um, and so working with like other organizations to do that is really important. Um, and then finally we did, um, I, I was really amazed by a lot of our comrades who got together to do some ins really good solidarity work on the recent national prison strike um, and turn out a lot of people to San Quentin and bring an incredible organizer from the, um, from the organizing committee of the strike, the incarcerated workers organizing committee um, to our membership meeting and like building that relationship was just like really incredible. And because um, comrades built that relationship in the justice committee, like we got, you know, like media, media requests and things like that being like, oh, what do you guys think about, about the strike? You see you're posting about the strike. And we were able to be like, no, like that's actually not a question for any of our current members to really be answering. Like some of us, of course, um, have been arrested and like have had family members that have been or are in prison um, but we really want IWOC to be like at the center of those questions so we were able to like make sure those types of questions those types of requests always got um, turned over to the actual uh, strike committee so things like that that I'm just like I'm really amazed by the justice committee and DSASF like everyone's just mad like diligent and like kind of always like we had this event yesterday where someone from death row by the name of Kevin Cooper, who's fighting for, uh, t for his own freedom and to end death, the death penalty. Um, he will be the, he's planned to be the first person executed once the injunction on the, on the death, um, row drugs gets lifted in California. Um, we've been working with him for over a year and he called in and we had a conversation where basically he, he um, speaks to us from death row for an hour he uses a bunch of his phone calls to answer questions and talk about what's going on right now and how we can fight the death penalty and put it in the context of fighting prisons and fighting white supremacy. And like, I don't know, like our members made the event happen, but like no one was like taking up too much space in my opinion. And I was just like, damn, like the diligence and like the humbleness, like it just made me, I don't know. I'm just like proud of the committee and that's like kind of what we're working on, but it's hella hard when, DSA nationally can, and even in SF can become kind of such a thing. Like I actually 
as a Latinx woman, I think AOC is really rad. Um, but like mad white people are trying to like put that on a pedestal as like totally why you know what I mean and like yeah. things like that and so it's always we're always walking a tightrope where like we we constantly are trying to keep ourselves in check and keep the work going and trying to be responsible comrades and so um, it, it's definitely uphill and it's hit and miss and we have a lot of ways to grow um, and we need to grow um, how we our approaches and our organizing tactics but. That's a little bit of what we're up to. Um, Victoria, I'm actually, you know, here in Chicago, I think something that we've been thinking about a lot is how do we do coalition building? Like, how do we support? And, you know, Chicago is very segregated. Um, a, a big question for us is how do we support the organizations full of people of color that are already doing work here without um taking up space in their organizations or trying to insert ourselves in a way that is anything other than supportive. But I'm also glad um, that you brought up uh, sort of the situation with tasers and like what that means for us in our society, because we see it as like, Oh, tasers are like less dangerous than guns. Um, but I actually uh, want to recommend to our listeners, the book rise of the warrior cop by Radley Balco. And that is about the militarization of the police in the U.S. over the past, like, 30 years or so. Um, and you reminded me of how he talks about in that book um, let what he calls less than lethal weapons, uh, which are things like tasers and tear gas and, and things like that that are used to control crowds. Um, and he talks about that as being connected to the rise of police militarization. And that really blew my mind at the time because... Um, you know, in my point of view, I, it, it was hard for me to see how um, something less dangerous, right, in my mind, than shooting a gun at somebody could actually be related um, to an increase in aggression, an increase mm. in violence from the police. Um, and and I think you make the case that it can be, and he makes the case that it can be. So I want to say that I really appreciate you bringing that up. Yes, definitely. Yeah. That sounds like a great book. Yeah. yeah it's good. Think, yeah. I think that is another point that people miss, that, like, police, as much as they've become militarized, like, and their origins come from, like, literal slave, fugitive slave patrols, like, they're not meant, they're not, quote-unquote, meant to be, like, considered militia forces. Like, there's a, there's actually a great article in, in, there was a great article in the New Yorker, like, a few months ago about, like, quote unquote the like mythical one good cop who mm. they profiled and like it was a good article as like by standards of like profiling a good cop but one thing he said that really resonated with me was that like it's so infuriating when cops refer to people as civilians because it's like no you're you're a civilian too like you know cops are meant to be like this like community this community like I guess, tool of accountability and, like, punishment. They weren't meant to be, like... Like, police departments aren't supposed to have, like, giant tanks and, right. like, right. drones and tasers and guns and, like, military-grade weapons. And, you know, like, anytime a cop, like, refers to refers to a, somebody, somebody as, a, as a civilian, it's like, no, dude, like... You're a glorified Paul Blart with 
a taser and a gun. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of getting towards the end of our call here, and um, I was wondering if y'all had any resources or any asks you might have for our listeners Resources, you brought up Black and Pink, which is a really good organization. Um, there's also a group called Gay Shame in San Francisco, and they're sort of, they're a, they're a prison abolition and, like, queer liberation movement or group, but they're also a movement. Um, they do a really good job of basically just antagonizing the powers that be. Um, and so I recommend that listeners check that out um what else there's a number of really good books on the intersection of um the police state and queer identity um the one that comes to mind is queer injustice by andrea ritchie and there's also captive genders which um cc mcdonald and chelsea manning wrote um essays for that i really recommend very cool yeah yeah, and um, I know that people are all over the country. There's another book called Golden Gulag, which um, is about mass incarceration and like the growth of um, of prisons, and it's written by the founder of Critical Resistance, um, mm. and it it's focused on California, but it really speaks, uh, I think, to lots of uh, patterns that are happening all over the country. And then um, I recently, I I suggest. Wherever you are, um, if you're if you have the capacity and, and the ability to, I know it's hard for a lot of people for various reasons, but getting involved in a cop watch, um, I recently did, and uh, it's like been a really great way to be um, like on a, on the front lines, like physically, but then also just be in community with people who um, who also are on the on who want to put their body on the line. Um, and again, I know that that's not for everybody. Absolutely. Um, is there anything else either of you would like to say before we wrap up? Um, a cab. Yeah. A cab. Yes. All cats are beautiful. JK, don't believe us. All cops are bastards. Yeah. All, all, um, I don't know. All chapsticks are, <laughs> I don't know. And when people, ask, yeah, and also just like when people ask, like if people ever put you on the spot to give them all the answers for why, what to do without the cops or what to do without prisons, mm. like put them on the spot and tell us like why they think this should continue. Yeah. Because it's like it, yeah. we mm. have to stop doing the emotional labor for like liberals and um, fascists who like don't want to do don't want to think for themselves of like why they're wrong yeah thank you for that because I get asked that question a lot by my uh, more normie friends lib friends who me who who genuinely ask it well most of the time in good faith but at the same time I'm like oh I can't keep I can't keep explaining this to everybody do some research yeah do some research absolutely Well, I am so, so grateful. Thank you both so much for joining us. I know it was like a little touch and go there for a second, but we're so glad that we were able to have y'all on with us. Yeah. Thank you for all your questions. You all are so smart. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for letting us on. Thank you. 
Yeah. Yay. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, of you. course. Thank you. Okay. Have a, good Have a great evening. You Bye. too. Well, that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Um, as always, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Uh, we also have a Patreon where you can slide us some money and support us that way. Oh, please do. Please do. Uh, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We love hearing what y'all have to say. And yeah, you can always send us your music, uh, especially if you are not a cis dude. Send us your music at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. And we would love to hear it. You can also send us your ideas for episodes, connect us with interesting people, connect us with yourself if you're an interesting person. <laughs> like, for example, recently our abortion episode happened because somebody said, hey, I live in Ireland and I know some organizers that are pretty cool that are doing cool stuff. Do you want to talk to them? And I was like, heck yes, let's do it. So <laughs> feel free to reach out. Absolutely. And that is all. And... I love you guys. I'm so excited that you're here with us, Walita. Me too. I love you guys too. I'm very excited. Yay. Aww, love, love you. you. Bye. Love you. Bye.